Remembering Thomas Moyer, John Kasich's tax return, and will Columbus Arts Groups survive? These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Nationwide Studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Bill Cohen, Statehouse correspondent for Ohio Public Radio, William Hershey, Statehouse reporter for the Dayton Daily News, Bob Clegg, Republican strategist, and Catherine Terser, Legislative Director for Ohio Citizen Action. This weekend, friends and family, as well as the Ohio legal and political communities, say goodbye to Thomas Moyer, the 22-year Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, died unexpectedly last week at the age of 70, just months before his scheduled retirement. All this week, Moyer was remembered as a gentleman, a person who helped restore dignity to the Ohio Supreme Court, and a man who fought to limit the influence of money on judicial races in Ohio. Bill Cohen, you covered Justice Moyer for all of his two decades in the, on the high court. How will you remember him? Uh, I will remember him as a guy who brought uh, respect back to the court. Back in the 80s, uh, Democrat Frank Celebrezzi was the chief justice, and during his reign, uh, his backers said, oh, he's great because he's, he's always having these rulings for the little guy. But while they did that, uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of the lawyers felt intimidated. The bar association was up in arms about it. Uh, there was some infighting between the justices, and so Moyer, who was an appeals court judge, said he was going to run to clean things up. And he said, "Look, the court's not supposed to be for the little guy. It's not supposed to be for the rich guy either. It's not supposed to be for business or for labor, men or women, black or white. It's just supposed to rule on the constitutionality of laws that are passed by the legislature." Uh, and, and not supposed to get into the idea of, well, is this good public policy or not? And in a, demo in a uh, Democratic uh, year, when all the other Democrats were winning statewide, Moyer won. And I think he restored that just a, a kind of a, a more uh, balanced approach uh, to the court. So it was a low-key style that, that he brought to the court. Well, it was low-key, but it was uh, very intense sometimes, too. You saw that in his campaign to eliminate the influence of money in judicial elections. He persevered. Uh, but I think one thing about Moyer, he, he came up through Jim Rhodes, uh, who was governor for four terms. But Rhodes always used to sort of camouflage whatever politics he practiced. But it was based on mutual respect. You respected uh, those who might be your adversary because you might need their help. And Moyer, uh, in a real gentlemanly and almost courtly way, practiced that mutual respect. Uh, it was kind of a consensus building by mutual respect that you really don't see around much anymore. He was as much a politician as he was a, a judge with a small p. Yeah. Bob, I mean, he was a Republican, but how mm -hmm. conservative was he, would you say? Well, I, I don't know it, when you're the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court whether your ideology ever really comes through that much, and I don't think it's supposed to. I think he did a good job of being fair, making sure that all sides got to say their their piece in whatever cases were before them. And, and I agree with Bill. I, I think we tend to forget how bad things were with the court when he got elected chief justice. And I think one of the testimonies to him that I think is great is the fact that you never really hear that much about the Supreme Court anymore. And back in the 80s, there were headlines about all the problems that were going on. And I think he did such a great job of restoring the, the integrity and the fairness of the court. And it wasn't just the uh, 
Republicans versus Democrats or anything. And they, the Democrats were fighting with each other mm -hmm. about the Supreme Court. I remember the Democratic legislative leaders, and Bill may remember this too, who had grudges against Chief Justice Celebrezzi, and they were going to withhold money and, <laughs> and all these kinds of high-profile uh, controversy that had nothing to do with judicial decisions. Catherine, you worked with him on trying to get money out of at least the first judicial raise, merit selection yeah. for your first judicial appointment, and then go to the voters after that. Yeah, what's interesting, I think, is it's very easy, you know, citizen action, money in politics, to say, well, wait a second, there's a problem with the system. It's really easy for us as outsiders to look in and say, wait a second, you know, should judges be hearing the cases of their contributors? And, you know, why is it that all of a sudden, you know, we get to 2000 and all of a sudden all of this money is either coming to the court or it's spent on ads, you know, surrounding these Supreme Court races? And, and um, it's really easy for, for me on the outside to say, oh, there's a problem. You know, what Tom Moyer did, you know, our Chief Justice did is said, there's a problem here. There's a problem with the system. I'm, you know, it's like being being the head of a system that is has gone wrong. And and you know that took tremendous courage to say, okay, we need to completely flip things over. The other thing to remember is, you know, it was just in 1987 um, that we first, you know, that we tackled um, merit selection um, and went down in flames. Went down in flames. And you might say, okay, 1987 was a long time, a long time, a long time ago, and it's easy, you know, whatever. It was 1987. That was a long time ago, except for. It's not that long ago. And when you lose that big, you remember that. And so, you know, I, I really see something really beautiful in his, his, his continuing to persevere. Good for him. You Who know? carries that flag now? Who carries that? All the other Supreme Court justices opposed him on that, philosophically. Now, it's an interesting thing because there are, you know, maybe there isn't the juice for merit selection. But there can be juice for things like um, recusal, appropriate recusal, not hearing the cases of your contributors. There can also be, hey, should we have a conversation about public financing of the judiciary? Now, I would not. I, don't, I think that there's not that for the legislature necessarily, um, but keeping money out of um, judging makes good sense. I want to be clear about one thing about this court. This court, in the last few years, since it's got all Republicans, it has voted pretty a pretty conservative uh, in, in most of its big decisions. But despite that, it's done it in, in a way that's been perceived as fair. So you don't have the kind of ideological vitriol that you might get when you have a, an all-Republican Supreme Court and decisions that are generally going to the right. I what? want to just yeah. disagree gently with Bill. I think they made the decisions in gentle ways, but I don't think uh, labor groups or Democrats would agree that they were fair decisions. In fact, the absence of one voice for the opposition, if you exclude Justice Pfeiffer, who votes like a Democrat, even uh, Justice Moyer said that maybe there's a perception that the court's not always fair because we don't even hear these dissenting voices. But I think that's the Democrats' fault. They have not run a vigorous campaign for the court maybe since uh, Justice Resnick won re-election in no, that nasty race. A Democrat will appoint a successor yeah. to Judge Moyer. Who, who is or Justice Moyer? Who is the... Who's the uh, we expect a caretaker appointment because there's a campaign going well, on right now. There, I think he can go one of two routes. He can go the political route and appoint um, the Democrat candidate that's running for chief, Justice mm -hmm. Brown. Or he can do a more, you know, judicial thing and appoint a caretaker and I understand that the um, the Nancy Rogers, Nancy that, Rogers from, that Ohio was State. from Ohio State that was the interim appointment for AG is being thought of you know I think it would be smart to do the judicial route because politically I don't think it's going to give 
their their Democratic candidate that much of a step up, you know, for that race by being the incumbent temporarily. But what does it say uh, if he doesn't appoint Eric Brown that we don't have a good candidate for chief justice? If I were a Democrat and he appointed a caretaker, which I think he might, I would be disappointed. Is that is what because would it hurt Eric Brown, the judge from Franklin County, if he is appointed? In that, you know, he, he's getting a political appointment after this very revered justice passes away unexpectedly. It's really a tough spot, no matter which way he goes. I don't know. Granted, I, I'm biased here, and everybody knows that, but I don't think it's going to matter because he's not going to win anyways. Maureen O'Connor's going to win in November, so. But if, if the governor appoints him to fill the interim, uh, then he loses to O'Connor, and then Strickland says, now I'm going to appoint you to O'Connor's vacancy. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I mean, that's been done before, that kind of yeah. thing, but it, it puts the governor in a tough position. Right. The other thing is, you know, um, Gov- Governor Strickland established this committee, basically, or panel, to give right. him suggestions and yeah. recommendations, and it's something, you know, first, first thing out of office, he said, hey, we're going to go through this process, we're going to have a different process, it's not going to be as political. Well, this is so highly politically charged, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's an even-numbered year, it's a good election year, yeah. it makes sense for him to follow the same kind of model. No matter what his decision is, it would but be nice that, if he... But that panel that he's created has resulted in the same kind of appointments that they had previous to not having a panel like that. With Republican governors as yeah. well as Democratic yes. governors. Yes. All right. Well, wait and see. In the campaign 2010 news, John Kasich releases a tax return. It showed he had a nice income from Lehman Brothers, but there was no smoking golden parachute that the Democrats were hoping to see. Kasich's 2008 return showed he made nearly $1.5 million that year, making about $600,000 from Lehman Brothers, the failed Wall Street bank. William Hershey, what did uh, John Kasich hope to accomplish by releasing this tax return? Well, he wanted to surprise everybody on Good Friday. He (laughs) took a page from Governor Strickland's uh, playbook. Strickland likes to announce everything controversial on Friday. But he wanted to put to rest the notion that somehow he benefited from Lehman Brothers' collapse. And he may have done that, but I think he just fueled the discussion about, you know, John Kasich was an investment banker. He was part of Wall Street, and he's not going to stop those accusations from the Democrats, and we should say he did not release his tax rela- his tax form. He released a summary okay. and three or four pages, and this is far short of a complete dump of all his records, which is something that Governor Strickland uh, did when he ran for governor. And they said they didn't know what he would be releasing for 2009, so we don't know if he's really going to make a full disclosure. And whether the Democrats find a smoking gun or not, they're going to use this link anyway. They're going to say, this guy made a million dollars. Hey, folks, Ohioans, what did you make last year? So, you know, it's still an issue. Bob, why not release 2006 and 2007 returns? Because I think it's all pretty much the same. I don't think it's going to... We don't know until we see it. Yeah, it doesn't very much. And, you know, Strickland released his stuff because he's always been on the public payroll, so it's always been public what he gets paid, so it didn't make any difference. You know, I think the bottom line on this is the Democrats want to somehow... Uh, blame the loss of 300,000 jobs in the last four years on John Kasich working for Lehman Brothers and not on Ted Strickland, who was the governor of the state. And I think that's, you know, that's the political acrobatics they're going to try to go through to get, get it accomplished. I just keep thinking, you know, uh, gold parachute doesn't ma- doesn't really matter. We're talking about more than a half million dollars in a bonus. And for people people that, you know, are struggling, they hear that and they think, 
wow, half a million dollar bonus from Lehman Brothers. And and yes, you know, that wasn't the only reason the economy collapsed. It wasn't just the investment bankers, but it's pretty easy to be angry and feel like, how will that person understand where I'm coming from? I think what we're going to have in this governor's race is an incumbent. Everybody hates incumbents this year against a Wall Street person. Everybody hates Wall Street this year. So whichever side can paint the more negative uh, picture of his opponent probably is going to win. So no positive campaign, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Limited. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that came out this week, the dispatch reported that a lot more Republicans are switching, a lot more Democrats are switching to Republicans than Republicans are switching to Democrats. Uh, Bob Clegg, I mean, is this just sort of the way it goes after a huge surge in 2008, people just coming yeah. home? It's pretty much the way election cycles go, and thank God the Republicans are having a decent cycle for the first time in, what, six years? So you're seeing a lot of a lot of people that now are saying, gee, I want to be involved. And what's interesting about that is the fact that the really the highest profile primary is occurring on the Democrat side, and that's between Fisher and Bruner for the U.S. Senate race. So you would think that the, there'd be more reason for the Democrats to stay put and do their thing there. So it's interesting that Republicans who really don't have anything except pretty far down ticket, uh, you have Democrats wanting to come over and vote Repu Republican. Well, and I, I'm, I will admit this. I'm one of those people that flops back and forth depending on like what's interesting to me, like I, or you know what what's a hot race because I think hey you know I want to participate in that way so that I I kind of go back and forth. I do wonder about the people like me that then have to this time actually sign something saying I believe in the principles of this party. And I, it makes me really anxious. One, I'm not exactly sure what exactly that means. Like, what are the principles of the Democratic Party? What are the principles of the Republican? Do you go to the convention? Do you go to popular wisdom? What, do you, what does this actually mean? Um, and is it enough to turn people off from even participating in the process? Because you're like, what, what does it mean? But nobody ever seems to get prosecuted for flipping back and forth. And today you can, you can say, in my mind, yes, I support the principles of this party. And next year you say, I changed my mind. This is the requirement that Jennifer Bruner is asking which, to flop back and forth. Yeah. Which I find interesting that she is requiring it this year when more Democrats are flipping to Republicans, and she didn't require it in 08 when Republicans were flipping to Democrats in greater numbers. So it just seems a little... Uh, well, she does say it's an equal protection issue because Delaware County was doing it, Franklin County was not, right. meaning it kind of, kind of our area. area. Yeah. It was the same way in 08. Too. But I still think she can make a case for doing it. What she can't make a case for is doing it after or just as absentee voting yeah. was starting, and some of these boards of elections were already shipping the ballots out, mm -hmm. and they have to unseal the envelope, I guess, and mm -hmm. stick in the loyalty. Uh, <laughs> oh, loyalty card. She said that was because she was tied up with uh, lawsuits or something. Campaigning? Maybe no. can't. Well, it is kind of crazy <laughs> to think we spent 10 years talking about election administration. <laughs> like, election administration! Yeah, we still are. <laughs> Let's get to our third topic, getting a bit lost in the news about the Senate primary and the casino vote, is issue one. It asks Ohio voters to approve borrowing $700 million to renew a job creation program called Third Frontier. Supporters say the current Third Frontier program has returned $9, billion, $9 for every dollar invested. Opponents, the few that have spoken publicly, question that analysis and call the program, quote, corporate welfare. 
Bill Cohen, a lot of big-name endorsements this week. Will that mean victory at the polls? Well, you'd think it would. I mean, everybody, they put a list of 150 different groups out there, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the Environmental Council, the Farm Bureau, the manufacturers, the retail merchants, groups on the left and the right, John Kasich and, uh, and Strickland, both uh, endorsing this. So you'd think uh, that they've got the money to run TV ads at the last week or two if they really need them. Uh, the, the entire political establishment, left-wing and right-wing, is there. I mean, the only folks really who are, seem to be opposing this are folks way on the right, uh, pretty far on the right, the Tea Party folks uh, and a group called Coast in Cincinnati. But they have almost no money. They've got a lot of email lists, yeah. and they can do some grassroots stuff. But uh, even they're, they're busy doing fighting a national health care reform anyway. So uh, I don't think they're going to have a big organized vote no campaign. In a tough economy, spending all this money? Well, I, I think that's the argument that could be used against us. In 2003, we should remember that a standalone third frontier issue lost against yep. really no opposition. The difference this time is, and, I, and I'm sort of getting it, I'm a slow learner. I went back to Dayton, and there are pockets of these little companies all over the Dayton area now, 20, 30 employees that are making money employing people. They're getting bright young people out of Wright State University, the University of Dayton, Sinclair Community College, and their companies are putting in their own money to go along with what they get for the th from the <coughs> third frontier, and they're creating jobs in lasers, fuel cells, all these things that we hear about uh, as the economy of the future. So there may be less resistance because people can see some tangible results from the money that's been spent. Bob, you're working on this campaign to, mm -hmm. to pass Third Frontier. The argument is, if these are such good projects, why doesn't the private sector uh, fund them without government help? Well, and you know, I I come at this a lot where, where I don't like with, uh, the government getting involved in the job creation business, but I mean, this is one program that was started by Governor Bob Taft and has been energetically in, uh, adopted by by. Governor Strickland, and this has proven results like Bill just said. I mean, we have companies that have created thousands of jobs in Ohio since this first one in place in 2006, and I think you cannot ignore that track record, and that's why we have a lot of problems here in Ohio, and this is the one thing we can do to get us back on track and towards the future. But isn't it possible that thousands of those jobs would have been created by those companies even without the third frontier money? There's no way of proving it one way or the I other. I had an argument to refute that. I said the same thing, and the person with whom I was speaking at the development department said, this money helps companies through the valley of the shadow of death. And I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, well, when you go into a bank, to sell, you want to have a new yeah. soap or yeah. a new car. You get all this market yeah. research about, uh, well, they'll buy soap if it smells good or if it cleans the dirt off my face. I go into a bank with my, this one guy's making a little airplane that's about as big as a bumblebee. And he said, there's no market for this. Yeah. I think there will be. It can go into disaster areas, uh, go into battle zones and, and do this censoring or, but, uh, during this time after the entrepreneur has used all his money, his mother's money, his friend's <laughs> money, there is no more money. He can't go into a bank and make the case. This is kind of a bridge, I guess, to, and that's a little bit sophisticated, but it made sense to me. Well, it's also a nice opportunity for our public officials to say they've done something. 
Yeah, good I mean, you know what? I, 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 I <laughs> That's something good. I did yeah. something good. Look at and, and so, and you know, it also provides a nice kumbaya moment, which we all kind of need right now. If you think about how contentious things have been, you know, ev everybody and their brother uh, signed on and have endorsed this. Is there enough disclosure, Catherine? Is there, do we know enough about these companies? I, mean, you know, I think they've done a decent job putting the information on the web. Um, I, I've actually felt that that was one of the things that that was a strength and was actually a selling point. That we actually have some some sense of where the money's gone, who's actually how it's actually been spent. I I, and that's I think the key that's here. It, yes. this is one government program that's got accountability. A lot of them don't. This one does. Okay, let's get to our fifth topic. A look at the arts. We get the word this spring that the Columbus Symphony Orchestra again was in danger of shutting down. It has cut its schedule. Musicians have have taken pay cuts, and it's handed off its administrative functions to Kappa. But in a bit of good news, PNC this week announced $1.5 million in grants to arts organizations in Central Ohio to be spread over the next three years. Catherine Terser, the CSO budget has basically been cut in half over the past few years. What's the solution to declining arts revenues and the jeopardy of these arts organizations? Yeah, I think it's not, nothing is easy. I mean, this notion of, okay, let's think about how we can bring things together. Let's see how Kappa can work with the Columbus Symphony and bring things together. That makes sense. We're talking about the loss of, of 18 full-time positions, administrative positions at, at the symphony. And then we're also talking about, you know, the actual people who were part of the symphony taking pay cuts to try to make this work. And, and, and so this is not, this is not easy. Um, on the other hand, Columbus is richer when we have good experiences, when we have experiences like being able to go to the symphony, when we have the ability to go to the zoo, when we have public artists. It's a very, you know, it's a very important thing to have and we need to come up with solutions and, and really start to think outside the box. Is an arts tax is that something we should look at? Something voters would go for? No. Do we have tax for the. That's <laughs> 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 a surprise, Bob. No. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a levy for the zoo, cultural, you know. The, the library, which is a quasi-government, well, it is a government. I, I don't know. Do you, if you noticed last year that music in the air, the the program that's the the Columbus Park and Recreation program actually stopped because they they basically ran out of money. Um, they managed to keep it going at like Goodale Park, and, and Dublin still had their thing along the Scioto. Um, I yes, I you know yes, I like the symphony, but I assume that I'm not your average bear, shall we say? <laughs> uh, but I think lots of us want to take our families to these programs that are in the parks, and uh, that's what I'm more worried about. But we already have government go money going towards those kinds of things, and like you said, I mean, when government you know, g money gets tight, they cut back. I think a arts tax is something that the people at this point in time would never approve. It's mm -hmm. We're being taxed more than enough for everything else, and just to add on something like this, I think people would revolt. I know that the, these high-level things, uh, the ballet and the symphony, they may be having big financial trouble, but when I look at, at the kind of things I go to, much lower-level events for $10, $20, free concerts uh, in Westerville and Dublin and Gahanna, you know, at the, in Worthington on the park on the green or whatever, I just, there's always something to do in Columbus. So, I mean, I don't know how many other people feel like me, but I'm satisfied. I think there's more than enough uh, arts and and music around and very and very accessible to average folks like us. Do we have too many? I mean, I, not just the, the festival type, but too, we have ballet, Matt. We have an opera. We have two orchestras: cha uh, chamber orchestra and then the full orchestra. Can a city this size, in this day and age, support all of this? You know, I would hope so. Wouldn't you? Well, I would I hope know. so. But I think one of the issues with 
some of our groups is we they don't have the healthy endowments yeah. that some of these groups do in si older cities like Cleveland with an industrial past uh, with and I think that's a problem. I mean, the well gets to be almost dry sometimes, as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting because it is a different kind of model of nonprofits. Because you real there's there's very little saving you. If, I mean, you don't if you don't have those endowments, you don't have that long history of funding. Um, every year you have to hustle. Every year you have to worry. And some years are a lot tighter than others. What about the idea of combining some orchestras, the Dayton Orchestra and the Columbus Orchestra? That's been floated out there as maybe a solution. Maybe they've looked at it, maybe they haven't. Like, do you think Kappa's partnership is maybe the first step towards that? Well, Dayton's close. I mean, that actually makes some sense. You know what, if it's a, if it's a cost-saving measure to make things more efficient, I think they should look at it. Uh -huh. The thing is, we hear all this talk about Columbus being a world-class city. Yeah and very few world-class cities lack a world-class orchestra. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how that goes into marketing to get businesses here or not, but we're told that it does. Okay. Let's get to our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel, some final thoughts, some predictions for the weeks ahead. Bill Cohen, you're up first. Well, with Tom Moyer dying, I think maybe some people may say, hey, let's honor his memory by passing this merit selection uh, thing with the judges. Uh, it may sound good, but I wouldn't count on it becoming reality anytime soon. It would have to go to the ballot, and it's just too easy to run a vote no ad saying, hey, they're trying to take away your right to vote. Bill. Well, Chief Justice uh, Moyer's death will leave a gaping hole in the state's judicial and political landscape that'll be hard to fill, both on and off the bench. He practiced a form of consensus building built on mutual respect that's mostly gone out of style. As one of his friends told me just this week, we can't afford to lose the Tom Moyers of the world. Okay. Bob? Um, the one thing we talked about today was the um, uh, primary votes and, and more uh, Democrats turning to Republicans. I think the other thing to look at in this primary election is the number of people who are going to vote early through absentees. I think we're going to see a big, much bigger uh, percentage than we did in 08 in the primary where we had about 11% statewide voting early. Okay, and Catherine. Um, I think we've had lots and lots of energy around politics, you know, and, and so this is a, a primary really to watch. And this is a time for us all, you know, get out there and vote. Or vote early or vote on election day. Not often, <laughs> just early. <laughs> <laughs> that is Columbus on the Record for this week. Check out our website. There you can get a look at what we're going to talk about each week before the show airs. If you miss a show... You can check out our streaming video. Also get a link to our Facebook page, a link to our blog. This week we feature two op-ed columns written by two Columbus on the Record panelists published in the past week. All of that at our website, wosu.org slash cotr. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week.